0: Hello, and welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the digital editor. Today's episode is focused on that classic tale of Hollywood excess, when a director enjoys a critical or commercial success, and then studio executives hand him, and it's usually a him, the keys to the castle. Sometimes a resulting film yields true greatness, but sometimes they just exemplify the director's worst tendencies. To examine this phenomenon, I was joined by...
1: Ashley Clark, programmer of the recent Black Star season in London, film comment contributor, and in the words of a film I'll be talking about today, a janky-ass bad luck motherfucker.
0: (laughs) Try and follow that one up.
1: (laughs) My name is little old Michael Koreski. I'm just the editorial
2: director of Film Society of Lincoln Center.
3: Nick Pinkerton, utility player. (laughs) Wherever you... I'm the Ed Armbrister. I'm wherever you need me to be.
0: Thank you all for coming. And so, you know, this is the first podcast of the new year. New year, new opportunities, new resolutions. It's almost like you have a blank slate, a carte blanche. Really, today's idea did not come from this opportunity of rebirth or whatever you want to buy into. It came from Twitter user Horse Crimes, who was like, jokingly to me on Twitter, was like, when is the Film Comet Podcast going to discuss Zardoz? And I was like, what? And I finally, because I've been using the internet for most of my life, I had seen the photo of Sean Connery wearing a red onesie, mankini thing, holding a pistol. And I finally learned that, oh, it's from Zardoz. And talking with this Twitter user, this fan of the show, I came to understand that like the production history, like John Borman, this was this big film that he did, after Deliverance, after he was going to do like the Lord of the Rings trilogy, it didn't work out. And so instead he got to make Zardoz, which is strange and I will talk about later. But that discussion it was sort of the genesis of this show, which is talking about directors who, after having a gigantic success, either creative box office, the studio executives came up to them and was like, here's a dump truck full of money. Make your vision come true. We totally trust you. And so sometimes they're really good and sometimes they're really bad. So I've asked everyone to bring an example of maybe a flawed masterpiece or a film they're willing to go to the mat for and just one that exemplifies the director's worst tendencies. So we can kick it off to you, Ash.
1: Well, I I struggled quite badly with your brief, so I decided to come up with my own idea. Um, (laughs) Sorry, everyone. Which was this curious case of Eddie Murphy, director. Mm-hmm. So in, instead of looking at his directorial success previously, which there was none because he hadn't directed a feature, yeah. I thought I'd look at Rewatch Harlem Nights from mm-hmm. 1989, uh, made when he was 27. Worth pointing out, you know, we've all kind of grown up with Eddie Murphy, lived with him forever, and seen, when we were growing up, seeing what we thought was his late career stuff, <laughs> which now stuff like Bowfinger now looks like blessed mid career yes. material. <laughs> but, you know, he was 20 when he did 48 Hours mm-hmm. with Walter Hill and, and Nick Nolte, which was originally supposed to star Clint Eastwood and Richard Pryor, which I thought was interesting. <laughs> they both walked away, leaving us with what we got. His Murphy's first seven films for, for Paramount grossed a billion. Mm. So they entrusted him with a, you know, a fairly sizable budget to um, go and make Harlem Nights, which is this kind of comic, dramatic, gangster fantasia set in 19, 1930s Harlem. And it's a complete mess. It's it's um, but it's it's a really interesting film. It's mm-hmm. it's when you talk about exemplifying worst tendencies, it's full of just absolutely rank misogyny um, <laughs> at every step. And is there is,
0: a, is there some homophobia in there too? Uh,
1: I was too blinded by the misogyny to spot <laughs> the homophobia, but next time I go Dang. back, that will probably kind of rise to the the surface. Okay. Every female character is referred to as is a bitch repeatedly, mm. and more often than not, killed. There's, what's the line that I wrote down, as as an exemplar of of the wit and insight um, into the world of women? I got a girl whose pussy is so good if you threw it up in the air it would turn into sunshine.
3: Well, there's a certain poetry to that, though. Um, so, <laughs> uh, and
0: uh, well, if a man said that to me, I would be flattered. I don't know what you. I know I was
1: about. saying that. to
0: you.
1: <laughs> I'm coming on to the quote in a moment. There's an incredible piece uh, which is published in GQ called. Eddie Murphy's Gilded Road to Ruin. And he's, he spoke. they speak to him about what he was thinking, you know, when he... It's a kind of hostile portrait of Eddie Murphy as this yeah. kind of egotistical chancer, but he never really rises to the bait. And he just says, hey, we fucked up, the script was shitty, I wrote it in two weeks and it shows. But I had to direct to see if I was going to dig directing and I didn't dig it. <laughs> and that kind of brazen confidence for a 27-year-old is remarkable. Um, the film... Uh, is, is a mishmash of tones, it shows, you know, I, I spoke about the, the, the sexism in it, there's also the kind of incredible vanity where, where Eddie Murphy's not used to having, to, to share the stage with anybody else almost. It's almost like he inserts himself as a stand-up performer in some scenes which drag on. He seems to get the last last word in scenes that don't require him to to have the last word. But yet the film is not without its charms and it's beautifully shot. The, the cinematographer, his name is Woody Omens, Great name for a kind of adult <laughs> horror movie. It's beautiful, beautifully shot. It was Oscar nominated for costume design. It's a very atmospheric kind of period piece in a way. And and also given how, how black people have been represented in <laughs> crime and gangster films, this is a year before Goodfellas came out with uh, Samuel L. Jackson playing Stacks, Stacks Edwards. Ah, oh, yes. Who was, you know, <laughs> whose murder is shot not once, but twice. Mm. And this is a film about kind of black gangsters and con men, and they kind of win the day. It's their story. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there's quite a, something quite uplifting about at the end of the film. It unites Eddie, Eddie Murphy, Richard Pryor, Red Fox, three generations of great African-American comedians. It's quite poignant in that respect. But just in terms of exemplifying its creators' worst tendencies, it's quite an interesting example, I think.
3: I, I think you mentioned something that's rather important to understanding Eddie Murphy is this sort of catastrophe of early success when you get as famous as quickly as young as he did i mean 18 19 he is when he first appears on snl it's very difficult to take fame seriously after a certain point Mm -hmm. and i think that speaks to certainly the last five years of his career where he's sort of steadfastly refusing even to lower himself to doing shtick anymore i mean he'll he'll show up he'll cash the paycheck but yes i mean that that same sort of flip attitude toward being handed uh, the keys to the lamborghini mm-hmm. i'll try it on i'll see if i dig it if i don't that's okay
2: and, w- and what happened to the career of eddie murphy auteur
1: after Harlem knights that was his only film as a so director. director he's he's the charles lawton of his time <laughs> yeah the, the great one in duns the albert Where- finney charlie bubbles yeah Wendell Harris, Chameleon Street, Eddie Murphy, Harlem Nights.
0: <laughs> Michael, what about you?
1: Well, I, I guess with the concept of the of
2: this podcast, it's often going to be directors who got a big bundle of money, perhaps, from a studio because they were so successful, either out of the gate or they had a major success at some point in their career, and they they went on to um, be given like the keys to the kingdom, as it were. And, and I'm sure these films will come up. A lot of this happened in the late 70s, early 80s, you know, this is the myth that happens to be true. And my choice is somebody, a major auteur from the late 70s, but it really doesn't have to do with budget. It just has to do with trying to renegotiate your fame and understand who you are as an artist. And that is Woody Allen mm. and Interiors, which I find a really interesting movie on many levels but especially because it comes right after annie hall he he won best picture annie hall was famously like the lowest grossing best picture winner but it was a cultural at the time but it was a cultural phenomenon of course in the great film and his immediate response was to go to united artists and say i have this other script <laughs> i want to make interiors a film that of course everybody compares to bergman because it's a serious somber film but it's actually he compares it to eugene o'neill he says he was always more influenced by o'neill when he wrote it what I think is fascinating about it, I think it's a very good film, but what I think is fascinating about it is that it's all the things he wasn't supposed to do. It obviously sets him off into a, a new parallel career path that he's still negotiating. And to this day, people will say, I prefer funny Woody Allen. To see. Today, people prefer no Woody Allen, but uh, <laughs> which is uh, un, unfair sometimes. So he did the, the two things he wasn't supposed to do is make a serious film, a very serious film. Mm-hmm actually um and the other thing was to make a a wasp movie i mean this is this was a very non jewish film, and he was attacked for that, or at least um it, it met with a healthy dose of skepticism. He's making a film about very white waspy non jewish you know, people um and people thought it was just kind of like a facsimile of other things that had been done before whether it was Chekhov, whether it was O'Neill, whether it was Bergman. Um, and because he had been so vocal in his love of Bergman, people just assumed that it was a rip-off. But it really has its own internal rhythm. I mean, it has its own very American neuroses, and you can see him working through his own stuff there. It's one of those movies that I, I watch often enough, and I always think I'm going to find the um, the piece that, that will destroy it for me, because I know it's a heavily criticized film. But I, it just really always... Functions really. Well. There's just a there's a tightness to it. There's a there's a purpose and there's a clarity. And of course, Geraldine Page is phenomenal in the central role of the suicidal mother. But I I just really feel like it's a fascinating case because it's set up the Woody Allen that we talk about now. And he yeah. would never have been able to get that movie made if not for Annie Hall. So yeah, it's just. Interiors is it may not be his best serious film, mm-hmm. but already in Stardust Memories, there are jokes about people criticizing Woody Allen for not making enough funny films. This yes. was this was two years later, seventy eight to eighty. So it's amazing how perception of Woody Allen changed almost instantly after this one film came out. And they he's want. made what forty something, 40, fifty films at this point. And people still think, oh, those few serious films, what blemishes on that career?
0: They went bananas again.
3: <laughs> they always. <want laughs> they bananas. love that
0: fake beard. <laughs>
3: I don't know how other people feel about interiors these days. I, I mean, as you know, I probably quote the line, you don't know how long it's been since I've made love to a woman that I don't feel inferior to. <laughs> 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 Almost weekly. Richard Jordan. So it certainly <laughs> takes up some real estate in my brain. <laughs> I'm not sure how I feel about it either. But I I will watch it anytime the opportunity avails itself. It's, I mean, the tension between that,
2: the, again, this Woody Allen neuroses and season, this very staid, for lack of a better term Bergmanesque aesthetic this this you know very um sterile environment is really interesting Well, Bergmanesque I... is used as such a stick to beat the film with isn't it oh right. yeah
0: yeah it's like... said,
2: well well i mean that's the thing always with woody allen if he's if he shows his influences and god forbid their art world influences from foreign lands mm-hmm. how dare he do that this is america you keep your art movies in your pocket
1: and keep it but quiet that happens domestically as well doesn't it with like i don't want to get too off topic no. but lynchian Malachian used as kind of Hitchcockian, yeah, just
3: wanting. Or if if anybody's moping around in an urban area, Antonioni esque. Mm -hmm. Antonioni esque. If anybody's sitting down to dinner, Ozu esque. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. if if
0: there's some red in the frame, it's Ozu, clearly.
3: Ratner esque. (laughs) Perhaps most perfidious of all, Ratner esque. (laughs) I guess it's my turn. (laughs) The spinning bottle has landed on me, so I, uh, I thought I'd go right back to the very wellspring Mm -hmm. and talk a little bit about David Work Griffith's intolerance.
0: Yes, because this is not a new thing by any stretch of the imagination. No, this
3: this movie is 101 years old now Mm -hmm. and I I actually before coming out here I was was, uh, parsing through uh, Richard Schickel's Griffith biography and reading what he had to say about intolerance and Essentially, he casts it as being yet another of Griffith's innovations, this one an innovation in directorial hubris. It's a movie he admires a great deal, as do I, but the way that he describes it is creating the template for all future instances of auteur overreaching his words are this is an example of a film where the director they succumb to the spell of their own temporarily inflated reputations believe there is no limit to their power to translate their visions into films and then compel awed attention to these films so to to sort of paraphrase uh or to borrow the epigraph before beware of a holy whore it's the it's the first sort of pride becomes uh comes before a fall movie should I give a little sort of rundown of the film itself?
0: Yeah, and it also, like,
3: say. Well, the production history is worth going into yeah. a little bit because, of course, this comes right on the heels of Birth of a Nation, which was a... Did Bafo BO on a level heretofore not seen in these United States or the wider world and sort of very much shifted the frame of what a big movie was mm-hmm. and at the point when birth of a nation was earning sacks upon sacks of money griffith had already embarked on his next project which is something called the mother and the law which is one of the four stories that are twined together in intolerance the modern day story starring may marsh mm-hmm. And as he was putting this together, which was going to be a freestanding film, Birth of a Nation became a cultural phenomenon, and it became extremely evident that there was no going back to being the sort of picture maker that he had been before. He wasn't going to do two reelers again. That something even larger and done on a grander scale was expected as a follow-up. So what he did in response to these inflated expectations was take the freestanding mother in the law segment, this modern day segment, and planned three other segments to go along with it. One which is set in Babylon in 578 BC. My favorite. Sure.
0: Love those sets and those outfits.
3: Sure. One depicting the life and death briefly of the pale Nazarene, Jesus Christ. And another <laughs> set. Oh, that guy? <laughs> What's that? Yeah, you know his work? (laughs) I did. (laughs) And another set uh, in the St. Bartholomew Day Massacre in 1578 in Paris. The... Christ episode and the St. Bartholomew's Day episode are slightly truncated in comparison to the Mother in the Law piece and the Fall of Babylon piece. Mm-hmm. But they're all knitted together and meant to sort of comment on one another and bounce off of one another, essentially telling this overarching narrative of man's intolerance to man or woman's intolerance to woman, actually. Mm-hmm. Because one of the interesting aspects of the movie is how completely feminized the history that it gives is yeah. in terms of the heroes that it offers may marsh's dear one or uh, brown eyes in the saint bartholomew's day massacre section or uh, constance talmage's uh, mountain girl in the babylonian section and then in the modern day section the mother in the law section the uh the villainesses are these sort of castigating blue-stocking reformist prigs, all, you know, old battle axes who are trying to take away the privileges of dance, drink, and fun from the working folk. It's uh, Catherine Medici, who is the sort of architect of the Bartholomew's Day Massacre. So, I mean, one of the many interesting aspects of the film is, as I say, just how feminized its version of history is. Mm -hmm.
1: So given what we know about what happened after the birth of a nation with the kind of uptick in KKK membership, glad those guys have gone away. <laughs> um, They're
0: definitely not out there yeah. anymore um, or in the White House. <laughs> to,
1: to what extent do you did you see intolerance is in any way some kind of mea culpa? It's not. It's not at it's all. It's
3: completely not. I, I mean, mean
0: Broken Blossoms is sort of the mea culpa.
3: I think no? that's, I, I think when we look at, directorial careers generally artistic careers generally and Griffith's career in particular there's this desire to put these wayward figures on a path towards enlightenment and I'm not I I certainly believe that there is a progress or that Griffith goes on his own track toward a different understanding of history and a different understanding Mm -hmm. of race relations I mean his What I believe is his last film and what I believe is his only sound film, uh, Abraham Lincoln, begins with images of the Middle Passage, 1930. And I'm by no means an expert on the subject, but I don't know of any other filmmaker who would attempt that topic. Mm -hmm. And I have to believe that, at that time I should say, and I have to believe that at least in part that was informed by the experience that he had, in 1915. I think intolerance is also informed by that experience, but not in the way that it's often attributed. Like A
1: fiercely literal, oh, I, I got it wrong, so let me because, make it right.
3: I mean, the real villains of the sort of core of the film are these reformist, progressive battle acts, these castigating, you know, uptight women mm-hmm. who are Griffith's sort of response, I think, and this is hardly an opinion that's originated with me, to some of the criticisms that had been leveled toward him because of Birth of a Nation. Again, I'm not uh, the first to draw a comparison between Griffith and Dickens, but it reminds me very much of Bleak House, Mrs. Jellybee, and her sort of telescopic philanthropy. Eisenstein also drew this comparison. It's almost, uh, you know, Kazan's on the waterfront level, not a mea culpa so much as, fuck you, what you blame me for It is an instance of your own intolerance. You've seen The Greatest Thing in Life. I have not, no. I was reading about,
1: I'm going to read a quote from, from Donald Bogle mm. about this film. In this climate, it was the director's favorite, apparently, in this climactic scene, a white racist Southern officer, this is from 1918, by the way, finds himself sharing a shell hole with a black private. At first there is great hostility, but war makes strange bedfellows, and evidently compatible ones. For when the white officer is hit by an enemy shell, the black soldier rescues him. In doing so, he saves the life of the officer, but is critically wounded himself. Dying, he calls his mother, requesting a last kiss. The injured officer grants that request. He pretends to be the black man's mother, and kisses the soldier on the lips. According to Miss Lillian Gish, it was a dramatic and touching scene, during which audiences sat tense and quiet. I mean, which is just fascinating to me. Like that kind of exploded my my, my idea of of what Griffith was was you look about.
3: At, uh, look at his Ramona from I think nineteen eleven. I mean, there's no doubt his attitudes are very difficult to sort of fit into a easy trajectory. Which I think the traditional or the longstanding reading of Intolerance has tended to favor this idea of somebody who's you know working things out and moving from you know a benighted state to eventual enlightenment when in fact it's just a much stranger and more gnarled trajectory than that
0: but I think that's true of most people and that it's sort of reductive to be like oh yeah well this is this is clearly an apology and clearly his thoughts were going this direction which we can only understand looking from this particular point in history
3: well yeah we tend to like to read into figures from the past this idea that they're on this inevitable journey that may be cut short by death or the you know fact that they can no longer work but you know eventually they're going to turn into exact carbon copies of us if they just if they just get far enough you know away from you know in the case of griffith being raised by a ex-confederate father (laughs) who. (laughs) terrorized black servants in front of him that he's eventually going to I don't know shape up shape up yeah get woke
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah and there's also something to be said about film scholars wanting to sort of make admiring work and sort of being like well maybe he wasn't as racist as you would think because maybe I'm gonna apply this reading to it but let's leave that alone for a second
2: also if that movie had been titled anything else ever than intolerance it probably wouldn't be seen as such a progression (laughs) one-to-one. Really good point, actually. I should
3: briefly step back and say it's a movie that I think is more spoken about, perhaps, than actually watched. It weighs in at three hours, 18 minutes. It is actually extraordinary how much is contained in that three hours and 18 minutes. It packs... A lot in there. Practically everything that can happen, both <laughs> mm-hmm. cinematographically and in terms yeah, yeah. of narrative, yeah. happens in three hours and eighteen minutes. It is the complete toolkit. You have dance numbers, mm-hmm. you have a bear chowing down at a feast, uh, you have wild <laughs> animals. You, you have, have the
0: fall of Babylon. You have the
3: fall of Babylon. <laughs> you have decapitations. You have the pale Nazarene going to his fate at the hill on Golgotha. Everything happens yes. in this movie yes. for good or ill. I,
0: it's a certain class of movie. I think Mother India also falls mm-hmm. into that, where it's like literally anything that could possibly happen in a movie happens there yeah. too.
3: But Aside from where it stands on W griffith's path to eventual wokeness Mm -hmm. it's a remarkable remarkable film flawed certainly and it almost points to this entire like alternative historical idea like what if this had been a hit on the scale (laughs) of birth of a nation and this is just what all movies were now you were expected to have like at least four parallel narratives (laughs) going it's an interesting thing to contemplate.
0: Well, I'm going to say that, so as I mentioned before, Zardoz was sort of the inspiration for this podcast. And that is definitely a film where a ton, a ton, a ton, a ton, a ton of shit happens. <laughs> so as I mentioned before, John Borman, success after Deliverance, was going to do the Lord of the Rings movies. Sort of had it taken away from him. A similar thing that happened to George Cukor and Gone with the Wind and The Women. He was going to make gone with the wind, and then he got taken off that he got to do the women free reign to do whatever he wanted, kind of the an apology and then now it's a classic anyway so Borman was inspired in part by the you know sort of like magisterial grandness of Lord of the Rings, but also by a Huxley story in which a man attains immortality but slowly regresses and turns into an ape because he has so much time on his hands that instead of like becoming like wiser and wiser he just regresses horribly and that really stayed with him and that's sort of that and then that question of mortality like what do you do with true immortality and specifically what happens with sex (laughs) weirdly what happens like are you gonna because if you're immortal why would you have children and so if you can't have children why would you have sex does your sex drive go up does it go down here nobody has sex and it's weird Anyway, um, the film begins with this floating head. Borman says that this was inserted to help the audience understand what the film was about. It does not. It is utterly, it's just this floating head of Zardoz, which is a sneaky wizard of Oz. It's like actually if you like take away whiz and of, it's Zardoz.
2: Spoiler.
0: Spoiler.
2: <laughs> or like mind blown.
0: Yeah. Well, he and so he's just taunting you. He's like, you think so? You're gonna die, right? Well, I'm in this film, and it's just completely bonkers. It's just, it's, it's, and then it cuts to this strange, <laughs> this utterly strange world where there's a giant stone head that barfs up some rifles for these guys who are again in these red onesie mankini things.
2: It's they're diapers.
0: They're diapers. Okay, we'll just say diapers. That's fine. A very not in shape Sean Connery wears this for the entire movie with a long ponytail and a big old handlebar mustache. Um, <laughs> I think
2: very not in shape is a judgment
3: call. Yeah, he yeah, looks okay. good.
0: Okay, he's like he's like a grandpa body, right? He's like a grandpa shape. It's a fit grandpa. Not, it's just you know, there's no muscle definition. Starring a grandpa
2: shape think- Sean Connery. <laughs>
0: <laughs> like I think when grandpa, when you see right?
2: very not in shape we probably are all picturing right? something yeah. quite different okay
0: he's not like got a gut but it's just like you know he's got the full chest hair not really muscle definition going on okay so not a not a body type we're used to seeing so maybe that's why I'm so judgmental I've internalized the patriarchy he's clearly. like
3: uh, Lena Dunham yeah <laughs>
0: It was his, so great, his... and <laughs> that's so the brave. thing. And that's the thing because you asked John Borman about, it and John Borman, like people, are like, what are up with those costumes? And John Borman's like, Sean Connery never complained. He never had any feedback. His only problem on the movie was having makeup applied to age him at the end because he doesn't like to be his skin touched, which is not yeah. weird at all. Anyway, and then it sort of follows uh, him as he penetrate. He basically he's sort of like. I don't even want to say it, but I'm going to say it. He's sort of like a neo-character where he penetrates the reality and he finds out that the reality he's been living in is a total construct and he encounters these immortal people and they are totally anti-sex and they have all these weird diversions and, like, green bread and, yeah, he just, like, kind of fucks up their society.
3: That's uh, literally one of two things that I remember about the movie. Yes. The mankini, as you mentioned, Mm -hmm. and the green bread. (laughs) And just I haven't I haven't does. watched it for 13 years, mm-hmm. maybe 12 years since yeah. I was working at a video store. Threw it on, Yep. And I just remember thinking, man, that is so dumb. Why would the <laughs> bread be green? <laughs> like that just speaks to like, yeah,
0: it's excess. It's just there's so much there's so much just superfluous stuff.
3: But that you know that stupid science fiction production <laughs> design thing where like oh, we gotta do something with the bread to we, make it all different. We gotta make it
0: like. <laughs> futuristic yeah can it be like well, silver about, uh, green
3: uh, yeah green bread okay It yeah, should do it
0: yeah and there, and i mean that is that is just like there's so many just ridiculous contrivances and things that are just there to make it seem more futuristic you can argue that there is a class critique here where it's like so we, this is a future where the division between the rich and the poor has grown so vastly that the poor literally live like this Hunter gatherer, hard scrabble, awful life, and then these very wealthy people are just bored, but cannot die. And they're just sort of confined to this eternal boredom. But
1: so I sense that something like Richard Kelly's Southland Tales, because of what is happening mm-hmm. currently, yes. is due a you know a big re- re- reappraisal. Zardoz is not something that critics have been scrabbling to no. resurrect the reputation of. Do you think it kind of deserves that? Do you think? But I know. Level? But
0: this is the thing, though. It's like for all of this ridiculous stuff, I think it's actually a very beautifully shot film, and it like Borman actually shot it close to his house and in, in Ireland, and there are just some very breathtaking. I mean, he just he's just somebody. It's like clearly this guy knows how to make a film, and even if it's this completely fanciful thing that's just full of excess it's still like valuable and there actually have been people who uh, are willing to go to the mat for this film i don't know if i would go to the mat but i appreciate it as sort of like this you know <clears throat> sean connery very generously only took a two hundred thousand dollar paycheck for this uh, million dollar movie and he waived the right to have a uh, just
1: don't touch my skin <laughs> oh,
0: that's right just don't touch my skin well, Ashley, I'm glad you brought up Southland Tales because that is I'm a film. Not. No, <laughs> that's a film that is actually bears a lot of similarities to Zarda's. However, they're both I terrible. A, they're, they are actually they actually they're both terrible. They
2: both deserve no reappraisal whatsoever.
0: <laughs> well, this is the thing, though. This is the thing. Um, so I, you said it was ripe for reappraisal because of the themes it deals with. I say no, and here's why. Okay, so first of all, generally when I talk about this film, I say this is the movie I would have made when I was 17 and I had millions and millions of dollars because it just really so it has cast members from Saturday Night Live, Mad TV, has starts the rock. It has these totally nonsensical references to other films. So they have Wallace Shawn as this mastermind scientist named Baron von Westphalen. And his crew consists of Curtis Armstrong, a.k.a. Booger from the Revenge of the Nerd movies. The poltergeist, this house is clear, lady, by Ling.
2: Zelda Rubenstein, okay? (laughs) Zelda
0: Rubenstein, sorry, I don't mean to disrespect. May she rest in peace, or whatever dimension she's in. Um, there's Miranda Richardson. There's Christopher Lambert, aka Highlander, in this. There's Sarah Michelle Gellar. There's Mandy Moore. There's Janine Garofalo as General Tina MacArthur. I mean, there there are like 50 people in this fucking I mean, movie. At
2: first, I thought you're just giving us a list of things, but the more you talk about it, the, the more persuasive you are.
0: Yes, it's just it, it's just go- And then there's a Rebecca Del Rio cameo. Oh, there's
2: also um, no reason. Stifler.
0: There's all yes, of course. Timberlake. And there's, yes, Timber I was going to mention Timberlake.
2: Timberlake lip syncing to the killers.
0: Yes. I'm got soul, but I'm not a soldier. That Thank one. Thank you. Hunt's
3: yes. Hall. Yes. Butterfly McQueen. Robot <laughs> Loggia. Robert
0: Logia. <Robert> <laughs> he probably wanted Logia and Logis, like, I'm not doing this crap. <laughs> You're driving nuts. Sir. Anyway. Anyway. <laughs>
3: Was he not? Was Robert Lugin no, not in it? I'm thinking of him. Mars Attacks.
2: He must be in that. Because it's yes, a similar is. It's a similar thing.
3: Certainly he's in Mars Attacks. Okay. He is. He is. Um, I just I named the first seen, actor I had
2: in my head. I haven't seen it since it came out. So it's not fair for me to say it doesn't deserve reappraisal. But I have very bad memories of the film. And I remember thinking at the time that the cineph- uh, there was a segment of the cinephile landscape that kind of came together to defend it. Yes. Very smart people. Jay Hoberman, Nathan Lee, Amy Taubin. And um, it was like I was living in my my own other dimension, because what I saw was just a bunch of juvenile junk thrown up on the screen, masquerading as a statement of the times. Well, that's what's
0: so frustrating about it, because it's like this was really an opportunity to say something and he didn't.
1: But I'd contend that, I mean, we're recording this on the day that Arnold Schwarzenegger has been tweeting Donald Trump, who's the president elect. You can't pass that for, for, for sense or reason. So there's something about the incoherence and enthusiasm of Southland when Tales. When was the last
0: time you watched this? Like about, seriously, about seven or eight years ago. Okay, I think. we'll try watching it again because yeah. he makes The Rock say the N word, and it makes me very upset because this almost killed The Rock's career. And that guy, I think, I
2: think The Rock's doing just fine.
0: He is now. He recovered. He's Look the sexiest long-
2: man alive, which is a whole other strange conversation. But no, to be fair to Ash, I mean. As I said, he's not alone in thinking that this is a, a worthwhile project. Yes. I'm, I agree. I'm not opposed paper. to it on paper, exactly. Um, as it plays out, as a constructed mm-hmm. film, as a shot, acted, written, edited film, I think it, it's talking about its incoherence as a strategy, it just to me feels like a complete fallback. Well, I, I yeah.
3: mean, can incoherence succeed as a commentary or critique of cultural incoherence? Not necessarily, but, uh,
1: but as a prediction or a, or a simulacrum of said incoherence. Uh, you know, taking away the qualitative. I'm not saying that the film's good. I wouldn't go go to the map for it as a as a good film in any kind of conventional sense. But there are things about it that do stick with me and that do kind of haunt me. Like at, what? Well, just the, the general kind of weird tone of it all. Mm-hmm. And thinking, what is going on here? Like, Because <laughs> bear in mind, this is after Donnie Darko, which had yes. had a, a difficult start coming out just after September 11.
0: Mm-hmm. But it was a huge cult hit.
1: Slow burn, I mean. and I think my my, my great nation post <laughs> Brexit post <laughs> Brexit land um, was very central to, to you know the, the reputation of Donnie Darko. It did really well when it came out in England, and then did quite well over over here and on DVD and what have you. So it, he got a lot of confidence from that, I think. Totally. Um, I mean, the Donnie Darko cult thing. I, I mean,
2: I, I saw it when it came out. It's a film that I don't. Particularly like now, but at Mm -hmm. the time, I thought it was an interesting movie. But you could see that the cult growing in New York, because they brought it back to the now defunct Pioneer Theater Mm -hmm. and uh, in Alphabet City, and um, they were still doing midnight movies. It was playing for a year, and the audiences just kept growing and growing and growing. So it definitely was happening in New York as well. After a very failed first release, Southland Tales. For me, the problem with was he was trying to create a cult movie in anticipation of a cult, as opposed yes. to just make a movie and let the cult you come to it. You can't make
1: something uncanny. You know, it either is or it isn't. Exactly. Right, where, and that was just,
2: just smacked of of trying to replicate something that was unreplicatable. Mm-hmm. So like, Oh, I'm a cult filmmaker. I better make a big fucking big budget cult movie. He also you wouldn't leave do Donnie
1: Darko alone. You know, he kept, he keeps trying to foist the director's cut, which is exactly. quite clearly inferior,
2: Right, which is the first one that I saw. Cause I saw an advanced screening of it. Uh, it was a critic. it has all the Watership down stuff, right. all the, that's the first version that I saw. So I actually have a hard time separating the versions. I, they all seem kind of silly to me.
0: Well, I remember when I first saw Donnie Darko, I was totally into it and it was like, For somebody in the Midwest at that time, it was just sort of like this amazing thing. It's like one of the movies that you watch and it's like, well, I'm really into movies and I really like love how strange and odd and like, I mean, the music is fantastic. Just everything about it is like so engrossing. And then I remember watching the DVD commentary with my friend, Brandon, and uh, we were both horrified to learn the little time spikes that come out, that flow out of people were inspired by football when they draw the arrows. And we were like, oh uh, jocks. <laughs> yeah, that was literally what we
3: were like, we we're like,
0: eh. But that type of thinking where it's sort of like trying to take something that is very like mass media every day where and then recontextualizing it, that's what this film does with every detail. Every, 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 every detail, and just even having the movie narrated by Justin Timberlake as this scarred Iraq veteran, maybe, and then Sean Williams scott like time copying himself to like reset the universe like it's just everything is just so excessive and to no end
2: he also anticipated like i was saying the called by creating a comic book that went along with it that would that would he was basically trying to create a world his own mythology the view-esque universe (laughs) right and um
0: he's he's in it too silent bob is in it too. there
2: you go i mean that's the kind of thing that just amuse
3: or wait
0: no, Kevin, Kevin Smith. Smith Sir Kevin Smith. He was knighted recently. <laughs> the queen got out of her sick bed. She's like, I have to do this one. I don't know how much longer I'm going to be here. <laughs> the other really fucking annoying thing about this movie is that the sort of George Bush facsimile quotes robert frost all the time and there are all these like little poetry inserts that just make no sense okay yeah we get it you remember your high school poetry class like good job dude like and again it says to no end anything exists
3: Well, i mean i think for for those for whom it works it works as this sort of pension-esque mulligan stew yeah. of strange and disparate elements it's uh that particular magic eye drawing has never really snapped into focus for me
0: me either right and just on a
3: basic
2: level like i may not appreciate donnie darko to the level that it's that it's cult following followers do but there's a big difference in in filmmaking coherence and narratives and storytelling between those two films donnie, oh, donnie totally. darko is a pleasurable experience yes it's fun to watch it unfold it's very nicely shot and acted southland tales is um it's it's trying this everything but the kitchen sink approach that I just don't think he necessarily has. And then the film that he followed up with The Box, which is also oh, kind God. of a disaster. Yes. But it still, it goes back to the Donnie Darko template at least, which right.
1: was a linear narrative mm-hmm. with a cause and effect yes. structure. Briefly mention one that popped into my mind, Okay, which is The Hateful Eight, oh, God. Um, which obviously came out last year mm-hmm. and which caused me no end of trouble watching it. Um, I found it very kind of distressing and upsetting experience and yes. also quite boring too
0: mm-hmm. I but he wants all... you to be bored because fuck you for watching fuck you for
1: watching <laughs> there, there's an there's an interesting kind of aspect to the degree of that middle up uh, middle finger at you well, um, because like... of the, the size of the budget But that entire carte blanche that is tarantino's mm-hmm. modus operandi to to make a huge song and dance about 70 mil, taking it on the road to shoot the whole thing inside a cabin. Right. <laughs> and, you know, not make use of those incredible vistas. I think there's, there's aspects of the film that work. I think there's some fantastic performances from particularly Bruce Dern. It's, it's wonderful in the film. And what struck me about it most is just how much it seems to prefigure the the absolute, the real ugliness that has taken over the, the discourse in the last... I mean, it's been bubbling under, you know. I'm not, I'm not kind of a a naive mark to think this has all come out of nowhere. I I toddled over from England and, you know, was was shocked to see how much hatred there is here. But I have to go back and watch the film, which is not an easy task because I found it so alienating and upsetting. Mm -hmm. Um, But the the extent to which it does plumb these depths of hatred and suggest that there is literally no way that Americans, black or white men and women can ever possibly get on without lynching somebody at the end. You know, it's an incredibly bleak film. And and I think it, it is, it's very much a conduit for all of Tarantino's most offensive and unpalatable tendencies. Yeah. But it's a fascinating film, which I will revisit once I pluck up the courage. The one I really wanted to talk about, though, was actually a film I like very much, which is Streets of Fire by Walter Hill. My, Harlem Nights was kind of the bad one, okay. I think. Streets of Fire is um, a film that Walter Hill... Uh, there's an Eddie Murphy connection in that it was 48 Hours, which... After, you know, he made lots of kind of lean, tight thrillers like The Driver, Hard Time, Southern Comfort, The Long Riders, none of which did. The Warriors obviously did very well, but none of these other films did particularly well. Southern Comfort and The Long Riders particularly did did quite poorly at the box office. So he took on a studio gig with um, 48 Hours, which was a huge box office success. And that paved the way for him to do Streets of Fire, which is this very kind of strange rock opera set in the near future I think it's it says at the start another time another place is the epigram at the start it came out in 1984 it's set kind of in seems like a, a, a melange of the 80s kind of power pop and rock and sprayhead era but also the 50s as well and it, it went down very very poorly but it's it's a very it's incredibly kind of imaginative film Walter Hill has obviously got a tendency towards comic book storytelling you know when he re-released the Warriors in his director's cut maybe we've talked about it before but he actually went back and inserted actual comic book panels into the director's cut which made it completely unwatchable you know he's much better when he's using actual film language to, to to mimic comic book storytelling he does that really well in streets of fire it's a kind of wonderful wonderfully strange performance from willem dafoe as the the villain dressed as some kind of fisherman teddy boy gimp it's a look that didn't really catch on. It's got a strange attitude about fame, and Diane Lane is is the pop star Ellen Aim who's kidnapped by Willem Dafoe, and and that seems to be almost a MacGuffin because that's kind of resolved quite early. The film seems to be about the misery of being famous, and comments on itself in very kind of meta ways. And it didn't really didn't do very well with the critics or box office. It didn't really do much at all. People said it was confused, messy, all these kind of lazy things, rather than actually giving it a fair crack. And I think it's one of his, absolutely one of his most interesting films visually and narratively.
2: I haven't seen the film, but you call it sort of a rock opera in a way. Interesting to bring up musicals because it just seems like often these directors who have a carte blanche, they want to try their hand at a musical, right? It's it's this ambitious task that they feel like they're up to as auteurs, finally, if they've been given the keys to the kingdom again. Also because, I you mean, know, one of the reasons why musicals don't really work anymore certain future best picture winners uh, <clears throat> aside is because there's no industry to actually allow them to happen right. it's an industrial form that doesn't work anymore this really started in the 70s they they want to try their hand in a musical and if you're not bob fosse you probably can't do it mm-hmm. though you can find your way around it and make something interesting out of it so you have you have on the good side you have martin scorsese's new york new york which i think is I, every time I read someone say failed, anything, I, I don't understand. What, I think it's absolutely perfect. I think yeah. it's a complete masterpiece.
0: Absolutely. Um, Even look, their faces. The difference between their faces is like, Well, everything, every
2: shot is perfect. Yeah. He gets around the issues of making a musical really, really smartly mm-hmm. by inserting elements into a larger, grander relationship narrative that feels very Scorsese. Yeah. But also you look at Emma Stone at the end of La La Land doing that last final number and look at the, look at Liza Minnelli doing the last final number <laughs> in New York, New York. Very similar film, very similar trajectories and endings. You know, talent is a big part of it. Being a musical talent really helps. Uh, so yeah. <laughs> Scorsese knew who to hire there. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so then there was Sidney Lumet, who did The Wiz, which is a very strange film, mm-hmm. but sort of admirable. Enjoyable. Uh, yeah, enjoyable. But the one I'm talking about uh, is Milos Forman's Hair, mm-hmm. which every time I see any part of it, I think, well, this is the beginning of the end of movie musicals. Mm-hmm. And also, it was clearly a perfect example of carte blanche. I mean, he, obviously, he started in The Czech New Wave, he came to the US after the Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia. And the first thing he wanted to do was make hair when he came here because he loved he saw the play. He loved it. They were not able to get the rights to it. It was obviously very hot property. So it wasn't until he made one full of the Cuckoo's Nest and one Best Picture, with this huge, huge studio success that he was able to convince them to sell the rights of hair, which was of course this originally this off-Broadway musical. The thing about hair is it doesn't have a narrative, it's a pageant. It's it was it was first set in the park. It's it's a counterculture anti-war play for lack of a better term, you know, the ultimate hippie musical. Right. Um as if
0: that's a big genre.
2: Right. <laughs> uh, well then Godspell came after it, okay. right? I believe. But the the first problem with the movie here is they try to impose a narrative on it and it's extremely embarrassing. And the changes that the changes that they make are are so lunkheaded that you just can't believe it. I mean, one, one of which is Sheila, who is like the head of the feminist movement in the play, is turned into a, like an upper west side, upper crust, who has to be convinced that the counterculture is worthwhile. Uh. And she's just a sex symbol. She's introduced, as Beverly D'Angelo. Yes. So you, you can imagine <laughs> how she's introduced um, and bobbing up and down on a horse, going through Central Park, a sexualized object. And they change the main character, uh, this Claude Bukowski, is supposed to be like the center of this movement. Instead, he's an Oklahoma transplant who is playing by John Savage in a very strange casting (laughs) who comes to New York and gets pulled into this world. And then it ends with this ridiculous um, mistaken identity contrivance in which the wrong character goes to Vietnam and is killed. None of this was in the play. I understand you have to create a narrative sometimes for a film. But this is particularly ridiculous and shows why you can't make a film of hair. On top of all that, it's one of the worst directed musicals, one of the worst constructed, edited, and song musicals <laughs> in the history of film. And you'll know from the very first scene you want to watch, you watch The Age of Aquarius, it cuts to dancing horses in the park. <laughs> There are cuts to horses on two legs moving their hooves in rhythm to Aquarius, and then it just cuts to. You're all actually different... setting this to me. I don't know. <laughs> well, the, the the horses were choreographed by Twyla Tharp.
0: Oh wow! <laughs> That's all I'm going to say. I did not know that.
2: And then it and then it and then it just cuts to all these different spaces of you know you have people on the steps in Central Park near the fountain, then you cut to the forest, and you cut to this all these completely um, disconnected spaces, and the whole film is like that. And if you watch any of the bad musicals made now you see more hair in them than you see classical Hollywood musicals.
1: Yeah. The horses were choreographed by She
0: I just love the idea.
2: Oh. And some of the people.
0: Some... Oh my God, I love minimalist horses. Oh my God. Just watch it.
2: Oh. Has any... have, have you seen the film of hair?
3: As, as an undergraduate, yeah. <laughs> I popped I mean... in the DVD and watched the sodomy. Uh, right, sequel, which is
2: thankfully like one minute. That and song is a minute long. Cost it? <laughs>
0: <laughs> you
3: Excuse and me. Snap the DVD and. Oh, that's
2: another English misunderstanding. <laughs> but you know, just to, to conclude, like Milosh Foreman is someone who, subject matter wise, this makes sense. He was his movies were almost all about the counterculture and people standing against governments. He came from a totalitarian regime. Right. He was interested in the play as a concept and as an idea. That doesn't mean that he was able to harness these things and make a musical. So poor milo's foreman
3: well interestingly enough i also have a musical which tries to get around the very issue that you refer to michael the sort of disappearance of this pool of talent that is specifically trained for musical theater Mm -hmm. which is francis ford coppola's one from the heart Mm -hmm. and this is sort of the hubristic box office failure extraordinaire maybe uh in the case of Coppola, it was something that had been anticipated through the entirety of the 1970s. Everybody thought that first The Godfather and then Apocalypse Now, everybody thought that this was going to be the one that sank him completely. But mm-hmm. against all odds, he you know kept robbing from Peter to pay Paul. He kept his little fiefdom up in Northern California, the American Zoetrope uh, Studios going. And he liked you know, so many of his generational co wanted to try his hand at a movie musical. And in this case, he was specifically interested, and I think this was always an issue for Coppola, in trying to imitate the, the way that the moguls had done things. And he was going to do it himself up in, you know, up in San Francisco. And in this case, after, you know, coming off of the very well-publicized overages on Apocalypse Now, the idea was to make a sort of small... Intimate picture. The subject matter, very simple. It's a couple played by Terry Garr and Frederick Forrest, uh, living in the outskirts of Las Vegas. Been together for five years. Things have started to slow down a little bit. They're not getting on terribly well together. They have a big bust up on the Fourth of July weekend. Each one individually goes out, meets another option in the case of terry gar she shacks up with the very great and very much lamented role julia who's just wonderful in this movie yes um gone before his time yeah but at least he went out playing Imbison in street fighter <laughs> as he certainly would have wanted to
0: <sighs> the stomach bugs are no
3: joke people yeah take care of yourself <laughs> um and in the case of the frederick Forrest character uh he shacks up with this sort of floor show performer Circus contortionist played by Nastasha Kinsky. Mm-hmm. They go out, they have their individual flings, they nearly get back together. They may or may not get back together mm-hmm. in the final couple shots of the movie. It's unclear as to if this is actually happening or is just a bit of wishful thinking on the part of the forest character. So it's a very simple little story, but it's done in the fashion of say the Fellini of Toby Dammit or (laughs) Casanova where in the Zotrope studios Coppola and his production designer Dean Tavaloris I think it is creates this total simulacra of Las Vegas from the strip to the nightclubs I was thinking while rewatching it, it's like if you watch a movie of the 1940s and they have these spree montages where people (laughs) go out on the town for drinks and you see like the different neon signs accumulating one on top of another. It's like an entire movie made out of that. Just completely (laughs) drunk on neon and the pleasure of sort of mid-century American signage. And the way that Coppola finds to sort of circumnavigate this issue, this lack of sort of trained musical theater talent, is he doesn't really particularly try. There's a couple of on-screen dancing sequences with Raul Julia, who's a very skilled tango dancer, and Terry Garr, who acquits herself very nicely indeed. But otherwise, there's not much singing and dancing on screen. It's mostly off-screen accompaniment sung by Tom Waits and Crystal Gale. And I have to admit, I was sort of hesitant to go back to the movie because I'd seen it in 2003 when it was re-released by Coppola Mm -hmm. at a point when I had significantly more tolerance for Tom (laughs) Waits' caterwauling than I do now. (laughs) And I should say I also saw it in an extremely emotionally vulnerable state the first time that I (laughs) saw it and walked out just a a complete mess. Mm -hmm. Um, But... It, it still affected me very, very deeply. And this was a movie that I think its entire production history was sort of played out in public. So the budget running up, this sort of little personal in-between movie becoming suddenly a $27 million debacle, the stories that Coppola was on set sort of directing from the booth and that he was completely out of touch with what was going on with the performers. It is an incredibly curious movie, but in some ways I think it converses pretty well with something like Streets of Fire because it speaks to this moment, I think particularly in the early 1980s, when among certain American filmmakers there's this pushback against what i think was a sort of dominant realist tradition running through the 1970s you can certainly see it starting with something like paul schrader's american gigolo Mm -hmm. or even something like michael mann's thief which is so different from any american action movie of the 1970s where i think it's almost this influx of japanese influence the sort of presentational aspect and coppola specifically said one from the heart he was thinking very much about kabuki and this creating this very like visual very graphic language for the film so i i mean it's i mean it's a
2: beautiful movie and what was always struck me and i watched it fairly recently again what's always struck me about it is it's how uh, dissonant the experience of watching it is with the stories behind it. Like you're saying, it's ultimately a small film, but a lot of that has to do with the music too and the way the music is done. It's not just, it's, it is a workaround around these, these issues with the musical, but also it's a, it's an emotional atmospheric choice. I mean, to hear Tom Waits and it's a different kind of Tom Waits than the voice we hear now. It's the earlier, the more um, delightful sounding Tom Waits and Crystal Gale. It's very um, like a lullaby. The whole movie kind of plays like a lullaby. And I, I find it intoxicating and very beautiful and small. And it's really hard to square watching it with the
3: stories of this like mammoth out of control, how dare he, hubris. And I mean, I, I just want to briefly speak about the sort of climax of the movie that takes place in this completely constructed simulacra of the McCarran Airport in Las Vegas where Terry Gar is about to be whisked away by Raul Julia. Mm. And just briefly and parenthetically, I just love how clearly past prime and how really sexy both Terry Garr and Frederick Forrest are allowed to be in this movie. Mm. These are neither of them whippersnappers. He's got his spare tire. Uh, she's got you know a little a little wear and tear on her. Anyways. <laughs> But it ends, this sort of climactic scene has Frederick Forrest warbling off-key, you are my sunshine, in a very, very pathetic attempt to get Terry Garr to come back to him. And if ever you have put yourself in a situation where you are beyond all hope trying to (laughs) win somebody back who is clearly gone already, it's an absolutely wrenching moment. I don't think it will ever fail to just stab me right in the solar plexus <laughs> so in that sense the title is a very apt one one of the lovelier titles i think uh of the 1980s
2: i'm happy you brought up frederick Forrest because he was in a film i was also thinking about not for this podcast but because of hair it was meant it was made in 1979 which was the same year as the rose which is the bet midler film that has frederick Forrest in it And I I just thought it was interesting that both of those films are actually set in 68, 69. So there was already this nostalgia thing going on in the late 70s for the late 60s. And the recreation of those periods are so incredibly false (laughs) (laughs) that they they don't work at all. But I just think that Frederick Forrest cuts through anything that he's in. Like there's like the Rose may have uh, like a lot of artificiality or bullshit going on when he's on screen. I don't know if you've seen the film. He's so unbelievably magnetically sexy And I do feel he is also one from the heart. And I feel like it's all about the performers when it comes down to that. So you can't talk about these films without... And Hare is also missing that sort of magnetism from anyone on screen. I mean, John Savage is, I think, pretty famously not a particularly magnetic performer. Um, But Frederick Forrest is... And Terry Garr is always been one of my favorites. I, I, I could watch that movie for another hour just to watch those two actors.
3: Well, I mean, so much of it is just watching them sort of go about business. And that's... It's sort of opened up by the fact that Coppola lets these Crystal Gale Tom Waits songs run through. So, you know, for example, in the beginning of the film, you just watch Terry Gar come home and sort of shuck off her clothes. And it's just the pleasure of sort of watching this privileged moment. And it's really very discreetly very, very sexy. And I I like the extra padding on Forrest. I like the fact that he has like Marlon Brando's nineteen sixty three hairline going on. <laughs> I think maybe it leans a bit hard on the sort of working class uh, use these dim, but at the same time, there's something very real and very familiar about these people. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's a movie that I, I feel hugely tenderly towards. Nobody else did, and it sunk Zotrope Studios, uh, <laughs> broke the agreement with Paramount, and the studios went up for sale two months afterwards. Yes. Oh, hubris.
0: Well, on that note, we have to end it. But before we close, as we always do, it would be great if we could go around and say a film that we saw recently that we liked, I will start. I saw Hu Shen's Millennium Mambo, and I got to see it on 35mm. Pretty great. Uh, it's just a really beautifully shot film. You know, just a very beautiful, expressive, an experimental narrative that is still can be, I think, is still very emotional and true and beautiful. And I will say, as a PSA to all four of the young women in their 20s who might be listening to this. If you're ever in a relationship that you see in a Millennium Mambo, it's totally okay to leave. Don't uh, think that it's going to get better with time. Just get out of there. Just, even if you're a big old mess like the star of the Millennium Mambo, just get out of there. It's okay.
1: So I've only seen two films this year. <laughs> one one was Harlem Nights. Oh. The other was David Brent's Life on the Road. Oh no! The, uh, the Office spinoff. Neither of those two qualify. So I will go back to a cheery film I watched over Christmas, mm-hmm. Children of Men, oh, yeah. uh, for the first time in a, a decade, I think, since it came out. And I found it very, very effective. Um, a lot of the things that, you know, it's set in a kind of near future dystopia, obviously, 2027, I think it's set. Mm-hmm. But some of the things that when I first saw it that you knew were kind of in the post, like moving LED displays on buses <laughs> and things that weren't quite there yet, but you knew they were coming. They kind of got that just right in terms of production design, but also the again that the the, uh, the way that the, the discourse, of, particularly in in the UK over over immigration, has just soured, and you've got these kind of terrible, grueling, harrowing shots of. Uh, people in locked in cages, and it just doesn't seem so far away. I I like Clive Owen actually. I know he divides opinion. I think he's very good in this, and I also it was nice to see Michael Caine cast against type. I'd forgot I kind of forgotten about his role as the uh, CND hippie Jasper. Given some of his more uh, Harry Brown, Harry Brown. Brown, and some of his uh, <laughs> some of his recent provocations, like telling Will Smith that back in my back in my day there were no black actors. I was the black actor oh, um, in the in the fifties and sixties, which. Yeah. It's obviously nonsense. So it was nice to see him play a character with some, some heart and soul and, and wit. It's beautifully shot, beautifully acted, and yeah, happy Christmas to me.
2: I'm trying to decide between two. So I'll just quickly mention the first. is I finally saw Fences in the theater, which mm-hmm. I really enjoyed. Denzel Washington just does a really great job of not trying to open the play too much for the cinema, making it uh, it's about the actors and the, and the blocking of the actors and the compositions, and it's very nicely done. That's the at August Wilson adaptation. But I, <laughs> I just have to mention uh, a strange rom-com that we watch. So I do have a, a tradition with my husband that we watch a bad romantic comedy on New Year's. Um, the reason we do that is because if we we have to set the time aside to do it because we're so busy otherwise, and we're watching. You know, if we have time to watch movies, we're watching movies, serious right. films. We want to, so we have to put that day aside to watch the shittiest romantic comedy we can find, mm-hmm. and we watched this movie, Something Borrowed, with Kate Hudson uh, and Jennifer this. Goodwin and John Krasinski, and it genuinely shocked us. <laughs> <laughs> we're still talking about it to this day. You think you know where it's going. It's ridiculous, but it moves along. It's good romantic comedy. It has all the conventions, and the conventions are all set in place for something to happen that doesn't happen. And it was the strangest thing that we had seen in a long time. So for even the glimmer of subversion that can come from a shitty Hollywood romantic comedy,
1: I recommend Something Borrowed. That's where they're often hidden, though, these kind of ideological about faces in the most mainstream films that people write off. And I don't mean to build it up too much. So people watch it and
2: think, "Where? what is he talking about? But it, let me put it this way. There's a character who is supposed to fill a certain role, and it's very clear that he's put there to do so, and then it just doesn't happen. And it ends in a very kind of unsatisfying way, but with all the conventions of seeming satisfying. So you're left hanging. Mm. It's odd. I don't even know if it's intentionally. Is so. there a Bert Farlander cameo from Away We Go? We Go? <laughs> <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> The film that's on everyone's lips still. Sorry, I couldn't remember the name. Yo, what
0: are you not on like a first name basis with that character like what?
1: Bert Farlander.
0: Bert Farlander. Anyway. Well, thank you all for coming. This was excellent.
1: Thank you for having me. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to the Film Comment Podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Nicholas Rapold, and edited by Michael Oatmark. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Film Comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth reviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com slash subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine. Film Comment, at the heart of film culture for over 50 years.